what it mean to me. Capital, go and make that history. I got a couple scholars to the left of me. Welcome to GWSB Proud, a podcast all about why are you proud of GWSB. My name is Liesl Riddle, and I am the Associate Dean for Graduate Programs here at George Washington University School of Business. And I have the great pleasure of sitting down with GW alumni, faculty, staff, and students to hear why they are GWSB Proud. Welcome to the podcast today. Today I'm joined by my very dear friend and also colleague, Professor Leo Morrison, who is also our Chief Diversity Officer for the George Washington School of Business. Hi, Leo. I'm so glad that you're you're here today. Thanks, Lisa. It's good to be here with you. So for our audience, uh, why don't you walk us back, you know, to the very beginning of your career? You've had a really interesting career and then combining it with what you've done uh, at GW. Can you just tell us a story of how did you get to GW and why? Sure. Glad to do that. Um, Well, this is actually my third career, and it all started uh, as an undergraduate student in business. And after graduation, I went to work for one of the large public accounting firms. I was there for uh, two years during which time I got my CPA. But I realized that I didn't want to do it for the rest of my life. I I was still in my early 20s. I I wanted more. And what I really missed was school. I'd always loved school, starting from the first day of kindergarten all the way through college. I just loved being in school and learning. I still do. Um, So I decided to go back to school. And my favorite classes as an undergraduate student were my three business law classes, which is funny. That's what I teach now. Uh, So I decided to apply to law school and I got into a good law school, uh, surprisingly. And so I spent three years in law school, loved every minute of it. Unlike many of my classmates who were anxious to graduate and get out into the real world and make big bucks, I really loved law school. So I did graduate and went to work up here in Washington, DC with a law firm for about three years. And then I saw an ad in the bar publication for local lawyers Uh, that GW's accounting department had put in. uh, They were advertising for somebody with a JD CPA to come teach business law in the accounting department. And I wasn't in the job market, but I thought, you know, this looks really interesting. This is a way to get back to school and actually get paid for it this time. So I sent them a resume, came in for an interview, and I fell in love with the place. I fell Mm. in love with GW. And then it was that you know, anxious few days waiting for an offer. And, and when I got the offer, I was, I was thrilled. So I, I came to GW then, and I've been here ever since. Uh, and that's been 37 years now that I've been at GW. So obviously, this career, it's been a rewarding career for me in many ways. So I'm happy to be here. Well, and you've played lots of different roles in your 37 years, right? I have. Um, one of the roles I haven't played is that of a typical professor. Uh, you know, I do teach, I teach a lot and I love teaching, uh, but I, I haven't done much research at all. I did enough to be offered tenure, uh, but then once I got tenure, I kind of stopped with research because I don't have a PhD. I don't have that research background. Um, so instead of doing research, in addition to my teaching, I've been doing a lot of administrative type work service to the university, uh, mm-hmm. both Uh, at the university level, which has been great. And I recommend that to young faculty to get involved at the university level in service because you're gonna meet people all across campus. 
very rewarding. Uh, and at the school level, done many things. Um, just to tick off some of the most memorable ones. Um, so I ran the Master of Accountancy program for several years. Uh, I Maybe my most fun was the time that I was the academic director of the Madrid Study Center, our study abroad office in Madrid uh, campus. Uh, and that allowed me to spend a year in Madrid with my family, which was life-changing for all of us. Mm. Um, and then uh, I also was the dean for undergraduate programs in the business school for four years. And that was also challenging, as you know, challenging to be a dean of, of programs like that, uh, but also very rewarding. I learned so much about leadership, about myself, and it gave me an opportunity to work with some tremendous people. Uh, and to make a difference for our students. So uh, I'm very proud of those four years. Uh, after those four years were up, I took a one-year sabbatical back in Spain. And uh, when I came back this year, this past year, um, our Dean Marotra uh, said, here, you know, I'd like you to do something for us now. Um, here are three options for you. And I looked through those three options. I talked with my wife about them and thought about which one should I take on. And, and that's when I chose uh, to become the chief diversity officer. So that went into effect in January and I've been doing it for six months now, six and a half months. And it's also been very challenging, but very rewarding at the same time. So why are issues related to diversity, equity, and inclusion particularly of interest for you to take a whole position focused on that for the school? Well, I, th I think it's really important to me because um, I guess I have a, a sense of justice, like most people do. Uh, we want justice, we want fairness. And, and if we look at the situation, particularly you know, in the United States, our local situation, there's a lot of injustice and a lot of unfairness. unfairness. Um, there are a lot of people who don't have the advantages that I have um, and face significant headwinds trying to move forward because of their race, uh, because of their gender, uh, because of sexual orientation, uh, disabilities they might face, uh, their religion. There are many different headwinds that people might face. And while I haven't faced them, um, I would like to use you know, whatever experience I have, whatever, uh, influence I have to try to eliminate as much as possible the headwinds that these people face because they're unnecessary. It, it doesn't have to be this way. You know, that, that black people, women, people with disabilities, uh, and many other groups of people, the challenges, the challenges that they face getting ahead don't need to exist. So, it seemed to me, I think it, it's important that society do what it can to correct these uh, injustices. Give everybody a fair opportunity to get ahead according to their abilities and their needs. Um, and if I can play a part in that, then that would be very rewarding for me. So, so when Anuj came to me with these options of what he would like me to do, um, this is the one that really attracted me because I thought, you know, here's something where here's a, here's a place where perhaps I can make a difference. And when I do retire, 
you know, you could probably calculate by age by now. Um, it won't be that long in the future. When I do retire, uh, this is something I can look back on with pride. I didn't just teach tens of thousands of students, which is you know, significant in itself, but you know, maybe I was able to leave a legacy at the school. Maybe I was able to do something that, that was really important, you know, a challenge, but very important. Uh, and if I don't succeed, uh, well, at least I tried and I won't regret that I never took that opportunity to make a difference. So it, it's, a, it's a somewhat selfish reason, right? It's, it's trying to feel important and feel like I've made a difference and give my grandchildren something that they can be proud of and their grandfather, those kinds of things, right? But I also think it's the right thing to do. So. You know, I think speaking frankly, I think there were a lot of people when you first took this role that kind of were, and I wouldn't say shocked, but kind of surprised that a white male, not you, but a white male would take on such a role or even should take on such a role. And so I'm, and I, and I felt that way often in myself with some of the, the work that I've, I've done in social justice myself, but where is my role? you know, as someone coming from the white community and so on, and what, what it, should it be? And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on that kind of a reaction and, and how, what you think should be the role of, of those like us. Yeah, well, that, that's a great question, Liesl. Um, and it's a challenging question. I mean, you see most people who are appointed to CDO positions um, don't look like me at all right? Uh, they're not as white, not as male, <laughs> not as old, I suppose. Um, and um, I, I don't know that it has to be that way. I, I don't, I mean, there are, there is some research that says that there are advantages from naming a white male as CDO, uh, that it, and, and this is unfair that it's the case, but that it, it, it shows that the role is taken very seriously. Now, I have to be careful with that because that could be misinterpreted, right? right. One could be very serious giving that role to anyone, right? Um, but it, but it, it does, it demonstrates that they had to think twice about doing it and not mm -hmm. just go reflexively and automatically. Um, that, um, I, th I think that the reason that Anuj offered it to me um, is that I have years of experience at the school and across the university. Um, and I, I, I think I can say that I'm well-trusted by people and well-respected. And that, that I'm, um, I've learned to be persuasive uh, in, in, in challenging situations. So I won't be doing this forever. Um, um, I'm hoping I can use my experience and, and my background and my contacts and my persuasion um, to get this thing going, you know, to get it really going. Um, but I need the help of a lot of, of, other, of, a lot of other people. Uh, I need the help of the diversity council and more, right? I can't do this alone. I don't have the knowledge that it would take to do this alone. I don't have the background in these matters to do it alone. So this is a, this is a team effort. I'm just the titular head. <laughs> I, I just carried the title and, and some of the responsibility for this, but 
Um, but it's definitely a team effort. And it's yeah. growing. We got more and more people coming on board all the time. Well, let's talk a little bit about the council because I have to say, I mean, I think that's one of the most inspirational aspects. I think you're very, you know, honest and very courageous about the role that you're playing right now. I think um, the work that you and the, the committee are doing together, you represent a lot of different types of voices um, as a collective and, and, and you're building such a great team there. Talk a little bit about who that council is, what they've done so far, and what you want to do going forward. Okay, yeah, I'm happy to talk about that because I'm, I think they're amazing. I'm really proud of the team that we have assembled. Um, I do want to just go back to your last question because, you know, it, is, it was a difficult question and I want to be mm -hmm. careful. I want to also add, though, that it is unfair to put all of this heavy lifting on the shoulders of the people who've been victimized by racism, sexism, right, et cetera, right? It shouldn't be left to them. You know, in many ways, it's people who look like me that are the problem, right? Well, they ought to be part of the solution, right? So I think that's an important piece of the answer to your question. So our diversity council is, is first of all, very diverse. Um, it's made up of 15 people. Um, we have uh, seven faculty members including myself, and uh, seven staff plus one alum. And um, so there's that balance. Uh, we mm -hmm. have racial, gender balance. Um, we have balance in terms of sexual orientation. But, but people weren't necessarily chosen for those reasons. I mean, those were important characteristics we wanted because they bring knowledge and experience and a voice to this important council. Um, but people were also were, were chosen uh, for their talents, their ability. So at our very first meeting of the Diversity Council, uh, we went around the table and I asked everyone to put all modesty aside right, and, and talk about what are their strengths. You know, and then how can they bring those strengths to advance our mission of, an, of increasing diversity, equity, and inclusion at the school? And this was such a useful exercise because we all learned a lot about each other in the process. And we also learned that we have a variety of strengths. Right? Some people are strong in communication. Some people are strong in data. Some people have strong networks. Right? Um, most of the people are passionate about this. So we're able to employ the strengths that we have with the time that we have and the interests that we have and bring them to bear the best we can, each of us individuals, um, on you know, solving these problems and moving us forward. So, so it's really exciting. We, we've, I think we've done good things already in the six and a half months we've been together and I'm really excited for the upcoming year. So what have been some of those activities? We've had a, a few meetings as a council, but mostly we're, we're trying not to meet so much and talk so much, which is what a lot of committees do, uh, but we're, we're trying to um, actually do things. So we've had uh, some programming already, uh, and this is part of the, the education piece and, and, and bringing people in, you know, getting people, getting allies, getting people to join our effort. Uh, we've had a couple book discussions. So 
uh, we had for Black History Month, we had three books, all of which had to do uh, with race, racism themes, in particular segregation. And, and we invited the entire community of faculty and staff to choose one of the three books and read it during the month of February for Black History Month. And then we had a book discussion of the three books together uh, in early March. And we did something similar with uh, Asian American Pacific Islander Month. Uh, and then in June, we had two events. Uh, one uh, was June on Juneteenth. We worked with the, uh, the GW Black MBA Association, one of our leading uh, graduate student organizations uh, to put on a program called the Joy of Juneteenth. It was mm -hmm. a wonderful program, uh, open to the entire community. And then we also had a pride event because June was Pride Month. Uh, Dr. Katina Sawyer from our management department, who does great research mm -hmm. in diversity, inclusion, and in particular in LBGTQ community uh, communities, uh, she put on a, a program on uh, being an ally to the LGBTQ plus communities and beyond. So I really liked that because uh, one thing it did was inform people more about the different communities that we have and different pride communities that there are and the difficulties that they face, the headwinds that they face, right? um, not being mainstream, you know, not being like what society expects or has expected people to be, right? Being different in that way. Uh, enormous headwinds that they faced. Um, so what challenges do they face? And then how to be an ally in general, which is important, but also how to be an ally in particular uh, to the pride community. So it's wonderful program. She's such a great colleague. Uh, I look forward to doing more programming with her and other faculty in the year ahead. She also has a great podcast. I'm going to put in a, a, a plug for her podcast, <laughs> the Worker Bee podcast. And uh, that is really a, a great opportunity for people to kind of listen to um, a dissection of some of the latest academic research coming out in the field of management, but then in a very easy to use kind of fun way. Uh, for managers. And uh, I think she and her colleague from graduate school still get together and, and do this. And uh, it, it's a really, really great podcast to listen to. I bet, it is. I bet it's great. She, she'd be brilliant at something like that. She's so, yeah. She speaks so well. She's so enthusiastic and so knowledgeable, smart. Uh, that's great. I'll have to listen yeah. to that. Yeah. So we'd like to do some more of those events. Um, I'd like in the, in the, the year ahead for us to start um, co-sponsoring events, partnering with academic departments in the school or offices like the graduate program or undergraduate programs offices. I'd like us to, to do things together um, and also across campus you know, with other schools to do mm -hmm. things together, co-sponsorship. Uh, I think that helps to spread the word, you know, helps us get the word out there to more people. It shows a lot of unity, which is what inclusion is about, you know. Um, so I'm excited for that. that that's gonna be one of our initiatives going forward this year. A lot of our programming will be co-sponsored. So I know, you know, when you started this, it's a very new uh, initiative, although the idea of promoting these values is not new necessarily to GW, but having more of a concerted and organizational effort, systematic effort toward it is, 
So I'm wondering, I'm, I'm sure you've sort of taken stock of what can be measured along these lines of diversity, equity, and inclusion. How is the school doing right now? And then, you know, where, what are areas that you really want to hone in on to really start moving the needle for the school? Right. We, we've taken some measures and we're going to do more. Uh, we don't have any measures of inclusion yet. That typically hasn't been done. So we're going to, we're going to try and do that somewhat scientifically. And we have plenty of people at the school who know about those kinds of surveys. But in terms of demographics and diversity, we have some data that we've been able to get through the university, through the school, both on students and on faculty. Uh, I, I have to say, Lisa, though, you know, kudos to you, because where we've been doing the best, I think, is in graduate programs, uh, that program that you've been leading for so many years. Um, our graduate programs is, is done wonderful. We, we're 55% female in, among graduate students, right? And you know these numbers. Um, undergrads doing well also, 49% female. That's actually probably even better, isn't it? It's right about 50-50. Um, but in terms of you know, where I think where graduate programs has especially been good is with the increasing number of, of um, black students that you've been able to bring in. I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, it's up to 14%, which looks more like the uh, general population in the country. Um, Undergraduate, I think this is an area where we need to continue working. Uh, our undergraduate population is only 6% black in the recent statistics. Um, so that's, that's below where we would like it to be. Um, but as you know, we don't actually admit undergraduate students at the school level. That's a university. Um, that's something the university does centrally. But what we can do is work with the, under, the undergraduate office for admissions and see how we can help. What we can do is try to raise funds for student scholarships you know, to bring more students in. And I'm happy to talk about you know, those kinds of efforts anytime. So I think that's where we're weak is in black and Hispanic students, at the, particularly at the undergraduate level. In terms of faculty, we need to recruit more black faculty. Um, we only have, if I'm thinking correctly, we only have four black faculty out of say over hundred, maybe 110, 120 um, full-time tenure track faculty, right? So that's woefully low. Uh, our students need more, to, they need to see in front of them more black role models. Um, they need to see more women. That number has been improving. Um, we still have a ways to go. And you know, it's a little bit harder to move the needle on tenured faculty uh, and even tenure track faculty. There are challenges, but we have to face them and, and do what we can do. Where I think we can move the needle quickly is with our part-time faculty, with adjunct faculty. Because from my conversation with students, they see a faculty member in front of the class. They don't necessarily know what that person's uh, status is as a faculty member. Are they full-time, tenured, tenure track? Are they adjunct faculty? Students don't necessarily know and don't necessarily care. Right? So there's one area where we can start changing uh, that demographic and, and getting more faculty in front of students who look like our students, right? And that's with adjunct faculty. So I'm working now with our department chairs on this process 
uh, that we have for hiring adjunct faculty. And we're talking about ways that we can diversify, better diversify the pool of people that we hire as adjunct faculty. Now, I think that'll show immediate impact. I think what's interesting too about some of the school's efforts lately, and, and this is really in, in large part thanks to our partnership with Microsoft. Uh, Michael Richardson, one of our online MBA alums, uh, is on our corporate council uh, representing Microsoft and has really introduced all of us to leading thinkers within Microsoft about those living with disabilities. And both in terms of students and their needs, but also staff and faculty and their needs. Um, most recently, Microsoft um, donated the help and support of a disability and accessibility audit for um, the School of Business to really kind of take stock of what kinds of disability services um, do we have accessibility opportunities um, in both our curricular, co-curricular, as well as our general operations? Um, and I think, you know, we've, we've learned a lot from that report. There's an awful lot that we need to do to move the needle on that. Um, much of that is controlled at the university level too, but there are many things that we can really start to do, I think, here in the school. I'm very proud of the work the instructional design team has always done with our online programs to really work on the accessibility of that content, um, because I think that's really opened up doors um, for a lot of students um, living with disabilities. But there are also these sort of hidden, you know, uh, diversity issues as well that I think universities also need to, to truly recognize. For example, first generation, you know, uh, we have a really active first generation uh, club on campus that provides an awful lot of information and support and truly community for undergraduate students that may be the very first in their family to ever go to college. Um, and I think many of us that do come from uh, families where higher education has been more the norm than not, many of us just take for granted a lot of information that we have just gotten through osmosis about college, about learning, and about the professional life and the professional world out there and how to transition, you know, to it. And so I feel like the university's done a really great job um, with the first gen uh, community, many of whom are business school students, right? And another group, veterans as well. Right. Uh, another, I think GW can be very proud of that as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, but I want to thank you for your leadership in, in terms of helping students and faculty, people who, who face disabilities. Um, you've done great work. You, you put together oh, a workshop in April on that, I remember, right? It was a meet and greet mm -hmm. on how to include people with disabilities in the workplace. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think I well, had some technical issues and wasn't able to go to that. <laughs> you know, it's an issue near and dear to my heart, but I still have an awful lot to learn as well. And that's, I've been really grateful. Uh, it's been a really interesting year of learning um, uh, with our, our partnership with, uh, with Microsoft uh, on, on that one in particular. So I want to turn our attention now to, you know, really calls for action. We have a lot of different audiences that listen to this show um, alumni, for example, students. Um, so first, let's talk about alumni. What are some calls for action? We may have alumni out there that are getting excited about what they hear that we're doing and want to help us 
move the needle forward? How can alumni get engaged with your work? That's great. Uh, there are several different ways. Uh, first of all, I mentioned earlier that we have on the Diversity Council an alum, an alum member, an alumna, uh, Christine Brown Quinn, who we're so lucky to have her because she's the newly appointed president of the GW Alumni Association. Right. So uh, Christine will continue to be on our diversity council and as well on the, um, the Dean's Board of Advisors uh, going forward. So what, what a treasure Christine is. Absolutely. So, so the GW and GWSB alumni associations are, uh, are fully behind our efforts thanks to her leadership. Um, and some ways that alumni can get involved, I think it'll be different depending on each person's circumstances, but um, I think younger alumni, uh, you know, probably not appropriate to ask them for money necessarily. And that's, you know, it's not the only way that people can contribute, um, but to contribute their time. So young, young alumni, if they can come back to campus or come back virtually to campus and meet with groups of students and share their experiences. You know, how did they go from GW to where they are now? There is no group of people that our students enjoy hearing from more than recent alumni. And, and so, and what I hear from many alumni is there's nothing that they enjoy more than talking with the students who come behind them. So it sounds like a match made in heaven. And what we can do, what we can try to do is to facilitate that match, right? So to put our recent alumni or even not so recent alumni uh, together with groups of students, match their interests. Uh, for our affinity groups, say for example, the uh, Black MBA Association, for, for student, groups of students like that, um, it'd be very helpful to hear from recent alumni, black alumni, uh, to talk about their experiences in the workplace. Uh, what, you know, how does their employer help them to succeed? What kind of mentoring opportunities are available? What kind of networking? How welcoming is their industry to them? So uh, these kinds of programs I think would be great for alumni to be involved in. Then of course, you know, more senior alumni and uh, entrepreneurs, you can uh, work with our career center to um, hire our students, recruit from our students. Yeah. Uh, we have a, a great director of our uh, career center, Mark Strassman, who was featured on a podcast not too long ago. Thank you, Lee. <laughs> uh, uh, be very angry, he'd be very, happy to speak with you about different ways that you could help our students who are looking to move from GW uh, into a career. Right? And then of course, there are you know, financial contributions of any size that could be made that would be very helpful. Uh, scholarships, of course, are very important. Uh, contributions can be made to hire faculty in certain areas. And one thing we're talking about is the possibility of of an endowed chair for a faculty in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion. To hire a, a professor with an endowed position uh, to lead the effort among faculty in research and teaching diversity, equity, inclusion. I think that'd be great. 
And uh, other, other contributions can be made um, to the Dean's Fund. When I, when I was the undergraduate dean, one thing that I found very helpful was having an emergency fund, some money set aside so that when a student faced some unexpected emergency that might interfere with them completing their semester, right, or even graduating, um, we could provide the resources they needed. I remember one student's house burned down, his family's house burned down, uh, but we were able to help to the extent that we could, and several other stories like that. So that kind of a fund is very helpful. And, and that fund existed, I know, at the undergraduate level, thanks to the contribution of a generous alumnus. So, so many different ways. Um, if none of them resonate, feel free to reach out to me or Liesl, and I'm sure we can come up with some other ideas that fit, uh, fit your abilities. And what about students? How can students, you've mentioned Black MBA, what are some of the other organizations um, or ways really that, that students that want to do something undergrad or grad to really help in this effort? Yeah, so we have just about every affinity group student organization that can, you can imagine. Several for women, Hispanic students, usually they're separated graduate and undergraduate, uh, pride organizations, uh, Asian American, of course, black. Uh, we have many student organizations along those lines. Uh, those student organizations can reach out to me and I'll be reaching out to them and already have uh, in the case of several of them uh, about how we can do programming together. And I'm always happy to go to one of their meetings and answer questions and talk to them. Um, to talk to them about what we're trying to do and how they can be involved. So. Um, otherwise, I would, I would encourage students to do the same thing that I would encourage all of our community to do, faculty, staff, and alumni, and that is to diversify their networks. Our networks, if we look at them, are often made up of people who look a lot like us, people who have similar backgrounds to our background. Right? And networks are so important for helping ourselves, but also for helping other people get ahead. Right? That's the most rewarding thing about a network is when you can use your network to help somebody else. Right? But if your network isn't diverse, then you're not going to be able to use that network in a way that really advances diversity, equity, and inclusion as much as you could. Right? So I encourage everyone to try to diversify their network. And I'm hoping that in the coming semester, in this coming academic year, we'll have, uh, we're gonna have a program, probably a panel about the impact of a diverse network. Right? Impact in the sense of how it can benefit you and how it can benefit our uh, core values of diversity, equity, and inclusion. How it can benefit the school, the community, how everyone benefits from having a diverse network. And it just requires a little bit of effort. So well, I'm looking, looking forward to that one. Well, another thing people can do is read and learn. And I think your book, you know, groups have been very helpful for that for me. Um, so what are you reading right, right now in this area, Leo? And what, what are, do you have a favorite book or set of books that you would really recommend the listeners to? Oh, that's great. Great question. Um, yeah, I've read so much in the past six or seven months since Anuj offered me this position. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, been, it's been tremendous, tremendously rewarding to learn uh, all of this. 
but it's also challenging, absolutely. I mean, it challenges the things that I was taught through all the way through law school even. The things I was taught, the very important things I wasn't taught, but that are real, right? So I'm glad you brought that up. It's really important that people read, educate themselves. It doesn't have to just be books, right? There's all kinds of media that we can follow uh, that, that can fill in these gaps in our education. So three books I would recommend uh, in particular uh, to people who are starting out or along the, you know, along the journey of learning more about this. Uh, I think one was so influential for me is a book called The Color of Law, The Color of Law uh, by Richard Rothstein. Uh, he's a, a, a law professor who wondered, you know, why are our neighborhoods so segregated? Why do black people, you go from city to city, why do black people live on one side, white people live on another side of town? And why are those sides of town so different from each other, economically and in another ways? Um, and what he found was it, it, it wasn't like most people believe, well, that's where people choose to live. They wanna live with people who are like themselves, right? What he found instead was that government played a huge role in bringing this about, right? The federal, state, local governments required residential segregation of races. And you know, I went through law school. I didn't know that, that wasn't taught, right? And his book is very detailed, very well-written, heavily footnoted, um, explaining all of that. And then he explains the consequences, the legacy of that how we still live with it today, right? Because you go into neighborhoods today, sure, you know, those laws have been removed from the books, but the legacy remains. And you, you see the economic disparity, you see the education and health disparities that exist, and they can be traced back to that, those times, right? So a very influential book, The Color of Law. And then um, two other books I, I'd recommend for being an ally to groups of people who don't look like you, right? How to be an ally. Uh, one, The Person You Mean to Be by Dolly Chung. And that was recommended to me by Christine, not just recommended, she sent me the book. <laughs> Christine Brown Quinn <laughs> sent me that book and I'm glad she did. I really got a lot out of that. And then I went on to another book for I read for Pride Month called The Savvy Ally, which is a lot about being an ally, but in particular to the pride community. And I learned so much about the LGBTQ plus communities and how to be an ally to them. So I'm, I'm grateful uh, that the Savvy Allies by Jean, uh, Jeannie uh, Gainsbourg, uh, really good book, funny, easy to read, very informative. And then uh, on my nightstand waiting to be read, a couple of books, which I hope we'll have a discussion of at some point at the school. Uh, I wanna read Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, it just came out this year. Looks like a great book and it's got great reviews and I've heard from friends, it's a must read. Uh, and then a book um, not so many people have talked about but it's called The Conversation uh, by Robert Livingston. Uh, he's a Harvard professor, mm -hmm. I've seen him on television many times, very impressed by him. Uh, his, what he says really resonates. Uh, but he, his book, The Conversation is about how to talk about race with people. And that's a difficult thing, right? how to talk about race. We're not 
used to doing that, but we need to be. Um, so how to talk about race and then turn those, con those conversations into productive outcomes. So that, that looks like a great book, very well written, brilliant author, uh, Robert Livingston, The Conversation. So those would be my next two books and I hope that we'll have a conversation about them <laughs> at one of our book discussions. Absolutely, well, you know, you're a great professor, Leo. You've now given me tons of homework. I now have several <laughs> books that I have to add to my nightstand. And, and as always, every time we talk, I'm just so grateful for your service. I'm, I'm very inspired by your passion and your commitment to something that's very difficult, but, but very important. Um, and I know that you, you know, live and breathe GW like I do. And it's, uh, it's great to see us doing something new and different and more. Um, in, in this area. So thank you for your service. Thank you for the book suggestions. And thanks for taking time out to, to talk with our audience here on the podcast. Well, thank you, Lisa. I'm always happy to help you. You're a superstar at the business school. Oh, thank, thank you for your podcast and everything else you do. Really appreciate it. We're lucky to have you. Well, thanks, Leo. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening today. Shout out for music credit to Plantain Poppy, also known as Michael Ferrier, GW Class of 2020. See you next time to learn more ways we are GWSB proud.